0: Now turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 58, and this morning I'd like to take it up from verse 6 down through 14. Isaiah 58 and verse 6. Let's all stand together and hear God's word this morning. We stand to respect God's word, to know this is the core, this is the authoritative word of God as he has conveyed it to us, Isaiah 58 and verse 6. Is this not the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out? When you see the naked, then you cover him, And not hide yourself from your own flesh. Then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the fingers, speaking wickedness, If you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. And you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth, and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. Father, We lift this up to you now. You have spoken, we have heard you, Father, that these words would stick in our hearts and minds, it would change us, that the power of the gospel would would transform by your Spirit's working this morning. It's not my words, it's your word, God. Do your work, we pray, Holy Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Last week we talked about the fast that God wants. What is the fast God wants? It's a fast to achieve some material blessing, health, wealth, etc. Some, something that benefits us on this earth. But then we got to what God's heart is. What is God's passion? What do we fast for? Fasting is a way in which we convey to God the things that's most important to us the passion of our heart, our whole heart commitment, so to speak. So so we get behind God's passion, God's concern, the thing that God is most excited about, enthused about, focused in on. And we want to align our passions with God's passions. And this, of course, applied in the way that we pray. We want to pray according to the will of God. So as our prayers as our passion align with the, the will of God and we pray in faith we accomplish the things we pray for and so here we have in this passage Isaiah bringing out the passion of the heart of God the thing that matters to God and it's not just you know God to express such passion about this some of you may remember during the communion service I mentioned these others I I was trying to find the most passionate expressions in the Word of God, where people are pulling out beard hair. Would you say that's pretty passionate? You know, if I'm coming down, grabbing the beard hair of my brother Dalton, you know, and just yanking out his beard hair. You say, Kevin's feeling a little more passionate this morning. Wouldn't you all agree with that? What what are the things that are getting people excited, and the things that... that energize them, innervate them in Scripture, and you find that Nehemiah is passionate about the freedom of God's people. Now you say, well, freedom from debt, freedom from mortgaging their lands, freedom from hiring out their children as bond slaves. That seems a little superficial. We'll get to that in just a moment, but but it's just this idea of liberty is big for Nehemiah. Jeremiah as well. Paul, the Apostle Paul, we mentioned him. He's, he's saying these people are curtailing the liberty of God's people. Somebody cut them in pieces for me, please. Okay, that's a little bit of a rendering of the passage. But Paul, Paul is, is literally saying somebody needs to slash these people into pieces because they are they're hampering the liberty of God's people in Galatia. I mean, there, there's just some intensive language in Scripture that seems to be exceedingly passionate about this thing called liberty. And, of course, God is passionate. That's why, right? What do we know about God? He hates slavery, and he loves to set the captives free. And it's for us this morning, brothers and sisters, to share in the intensity of Nehemiah and God. Now, there's something that runs in your blood when you hear somebody stand up and say, give me liberty or give me death. Hey, that's the kind of thing that motivates an entire nation as in our nation, as in China now, you hear this, this Patrick Henry quote is on the streets in China. They're saying, give me liberty or give me death. That's what they're saying, and on the streets of China. And it's very possible they're all going to die because there's not very much there for the very beginnings of liberty for the civil magistrate in China right now. But, you know, we have this in American heritage, don't we? Live free or die. Is that New Hampshire? Trying to remember which state that is. And there are these conservatives, these Republicans, you know, that's their statement when they run for politics live free or die. Of course, the answer is free from what? Isn't that the overarching question? You want to be free? Free from what? That's a little piece most people aren't thinking about, you know, they're not thinking about what, what do I want to be free from? It just sounds good. And it is good. It's a good concept. It's God's concept. I think that's why it runs in our blood to some extent. But Americans are in the same boat as China. Hey, we've got seven times more government in our lives as a percentage of the GNI as we did in the turn of the 20th century. Roughly seven times more government that we have voted for, that we have fallen down on our faces and begged for as much tyranny as we can possibly get. It's only increased in the last four years. Thanks to the last two presidents, not good, not good. This is where Americans are. Americans are in slavery. They're bound in chains. And as Samuel Adams said, if you love wealth more than liberty, the tranquility of servitude, better than the animating contest of freedom, depart from us in peace. May your chains rest lightly upon you and may posterity forget that you were a countryman. That's what the founders of this nation that's how they felt about liberty. And some of you are about ready to say amen to this, right? Because you're Americans. You have that heritage. You, you like that. I like it. But, but friends, again, what is this? Americans are enslaved because they love wealth more than liberty. They love their chains and the tranquility of servitude better than the animating contest of freedom. That's Americans. That's people by nature. They don't like liberty. They do kiss the chains that bind them. Almost nobody in the United States resonates with the principles of liberty. Family economy, debt-free living, self-government, freedom from socialism, freedom from Social Security taxation. Maybe 1%, maybe, Americans kiss the chains that bind them. And I know that's uncomfortable to hear those words this morning, but the sooner that we step back and say, yes, yes. This is what we have become as a nation. The sooner we're going to meet the the truth face to face. And somebody just needs to stand up and say it. Americans are enslaved, and Americans kiss the chains that bind them. Does the truth hurt? What do you guys think? You bet it does. Absolutely. But why is this? The prospects, as I see it, for our nation, far worse than in 1994 when I was more active in politics and such. Prospects far worse today by all of the indexes. But the reason for this is that Americans love the tranquility of servitude. They, they resist the idea of self-government, family integrity, moral living. Americans love sin. They kiss the chains that bind them. Americans love their sin. That's where they are. And our our founders understood that liberty was impossible unless there was self-government. As William Penn would say or Benjamin Franklin, some of these guys, not even Christians, they would still say, either you'll be governed by God or by God you'll be governed. That is, either you'll be self-governed according to God's word or By God's sovereign working in your life, man, you're going to be tyrannized. Big governments are going to tyrannize the living daylights out of you. You're going to get big government if you don't self-govern. And yet Americans say, but I love sin. I don't like to self-govern. I love the dysfunctionality of family life today. I love it. I celebrate it. That's where Americans are today. So, brothers and sisters, there are so many levels of enslavement. The first is bond slavery, or slavery to big governments and big banks. Paul even mentions this in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 7, as you know. He says, if you can be free from the unnecessary servitude of men, use it rather. You are bought with a price. The blood of Jesus Christ be not the servants of men. Please, 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 no more bond slavery. Don't bring her back to America in 1840 either. So the first thing that, that we repudiate is bond slavery, and any kind of slavery to the unnecessary big government forces. And then secondly, the second level of slavery is the slavery of addiction, the enslavement to the wrong gods. And then, of course, the root of all slavery is slavery to sin and the devil. That's why Jesus said in John 8, it's not just about you guys being enslaved by Rome, it's not the, that's not the big issue. You are slaves to sin, he says. That's your problem. They were very offended by that. But he says, you are slaves to the devil. You are slaves to sin. But, but then he said, if the Son will make you free, you will be free indeed. Hallelujah. That's why he came. And he's passionate about that. He wanted to be sure everybody knew he was there to set the captives free. And that's why they put him to death. Because they didn't want that. Well, the children of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. Another picture of that. They were enslaved to their sin as well. Enslaved to the leeks and onions in Egypt. Remember that? Remember they wanted to go back to Egypt for the leeks and onions and the slavery. They loved all that. They wanted to go back to Egypt because they were enslaved to the leeks and the onions and their sin and all of that. But the point is here that, brothers and sisters, that we are to love liberty. We are to love liberty. The very word itself should just send a tingle through your heart and mind. Wow, liberty! That's beautiful. You look around you, you see slavery all over the place. see people who can't get free from their addictions. You see, you see this idolatry and the condemning, condemning spirit and all this, the fear of death and the devil, and you look around, you look in their faces, they're in handcuffs, they're in cuffs. There's slavery all over the place. It defines our world. It's everywhere. People say, I just can't be free from this addiction, or I can't be free from sin. And they're concerned, and they're worried about death and disease, and that's their conversation, and they're so bound in their sin and their helplessness. They're like 10 feet under the ground in chains. It's all around us. It's it's just horrendous. And yet, brothers and sisters, we love liberty. I love liberty. I don't like slavery. I don't like debt. I don't like communism. I don't know about you guys. I'm guessing some of you are probably going, yeah. But as for me, yeah, give me liberty or give me death. Yes, I love liberty. I hate communism. I hate big government. I hate sin. I hate the devil. I hate these handcuffs of holding my brothers and sisters down often in addictions and such. I hate it. With everything in me, I hate it. And I love liberty. I love the liberty we have in Jesus Christ. I love it. I want to proclaim it. I want to tell more people about it. This is the thing that animates me. Does it animate you? Are you fasting for these things? This is what matters most. Slavery is a heavy addiction, heavy burden. Heavy addictions are heavy burdens. It's a burden of serving other gods. It's a burden of guilt. Constantly coming to blame shifting and self-atonement and meeting a standard that people make up for themselves or false religions make up for them. You know what it's like. You've seen it all around you. Every false religion's got a heavy burden on people because of their guilt. They establish this standard. If you meet the standard, your guilt will be gone. It's never gone. They never meet the standard, and the guilt's never gone. So they're still in the, the chains. And it doesn't do any good to them. You know, you look at this and you see there's such a burden, such a tying down by the false religions and, and sin and the condemnation of their own consciences, as well as the condemnation of the devil. And, the bondage of the fear of death and all of this, it's just horrific. It's, there's no lightness. There's no glory in it. There's nothing of any value at all in it. And all by nature don't experience it. They don't know what it's like. The reason why they kiss the chains that bind them, they, they just don't know what it's like not to have chains on. That's probably the main thing. If you've, you've been born in chains, raised in chains, still in chains... They just don't know what it is to be light and freed. And as the Son has made us free, to know what it is to be free indeed, they still know it. So, brothers and sisters, there's no freedom but to enter and increased levels of bondage. The prisoner has the freedom to enter the door that opens into smaller confinements. So, so here's the picture that comes to my mind is they, they start having 150 square feet. They have, they say, the freedom to go through a door. The door is marked, more sin. So they go, good, more sin. They open the door and they walk in and it's 50 square feet. And within the 50 square feet chamber, there's another door that says, more sin. And they say, good, another opportunity, another freedom to open another door, to crawl into it, and now they're in 10 square feet. That's the world. That's what people are doing in their sin, in their idolatries, in their addictions, that's what they're doing. They have the freedom, they think, to go into smaller and smaller confinements until they're bound hand and foot and they can't move a cotton pick an inch. But if the sun will set you free, man, you will be free indeed. Americans are so wealthy, they get chains padded with velvet. That's the only difference. You well, know, we're in America. Yeah, your chains are padded with velvet. Great. Now you're even less sensitive to the horrific nature of the slavery that American, Americans find themselves in. But brothers and sisters, the Son has come to set us free. The Son has come to bring about this great redemption He sets the captives free. Now let's look at the big if in verses 9 and 10. I call this the big if, verses 9 and 10. We're moving along here. We've already looked at some of the ifs in the previous passage, but here's the big if, the premise. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking of wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul. So this is the big if. That is sharing the passion of God fasting for redemption, crying aloud to God, taking away the yoke, the yoke that people place on others. But this 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 is the need for redemption. This is the setting the captives free. This is the vision of God. If redemption and manumission and ransoming and setting captives free is your passion, if that's what you're after, if that's what animates you, both for yourself and for others, if that's the value in your life, that's the premise. That's where it all begins. That's it. That we have a thirst for freedom. We see the chains. We want some liberty here. Liberty to love. Liberty to obey God. Liberty to be free from the, the guilt and the, the, the condemnation of the devil. And we see, yeah, there's a value to that. Yeah, that's what I need. That's what I want. I want that for others as well. That's the premise that, Paul, that Isaiah is bringing out here. If relieving the suffering of others as well their spiritual impoverishment their languishing their starvation if that's a value to you and then he's got a contrast here uh, with those who point the finger speak wickedness and what is that the finger of condemnation accusation pointing at others blame shifting to others and speaking wickedness where the, there's no gospel there's no forgiveness there's no redemption going on here basically this is negativity this is an overall attitude of negativity. And there are some Christians who may walk around with a basically negative perspective of things, pointing the finger in the negative sense of this or that. Now, it's not to say that we don't mention some of the negative things. The Bible's going through that. We list all of that and such. But the point is that, that, that it doesn't come down to a message of redemption. That's the issue here. It's got to come down to Redemption. Speaking wickedly as, as I see it, just, just anything that's wicked. Cursing, complaining, blame-shifting, pointing out the sins of others, slandering, general and negative thinking that bears no possibility of redemption at all. These people curse the darkness. They have no idea how to light a candle. It's the negativity. That's what's been condemned here. There's no good message, no gospel. Versus what? Versus offering redemption to others. Presenting it. Envisioning it. Envisioning it. That's a word I like. Can you envision redemption for that drug addict crawling around the gutters of Denver? Can you envision what that man would look like if Jesus came into his life and and, and pulled him out and gave him new life And he becomes this shining vessel of honor to to the creator and forever and ever shouting praises to the name of Jesus. Can you imagine that for that man? Envisioning the redemption of God for yourselves and others. Getting on board, God's vision. Why Jesus came. Sending the Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through Jesus might be saved. And to offer that redemption, to, to bring it out, to say, you know what? This is exactly why my Savior came. I'm so glad I'm here ministering in this ditch in downtown Denver. I, just, I want to say Jesus came for this. This is the reason. He came for you. No matter how desperate the situation how torn down, how damaged goods, no matter how much the ravages of sin have torn apart the people or the nation, you've got a redemptive message. Remember I gave an encouragement to the midwives who were being trained. And they were graduating and there were a couple of them going to go out and do midwifery services. And some of them would be out with the unsaved, unbelievers, people in horrible conditions, broken families, lesbians, etc., I said, no matter where they are, you've got a redemptive message. They could be at the bottom of the barrel, it's all up from here. And you're the first one to interact with that person who needs to hear the gospel of Jesus right here because this is the redemptive message for her in this situation, whatever situation this woman has found herself in. We come with redemption. We come with a redemptive message. This is the vision of God. This is what we fast for. This is what we're passionate for. Envision the world as God sees it. Envision the drab world of bondage. Satan's slaves and play toys bred in the dungeons of Isengard. Some of you may understand what that means. Just horrible dungeons under a castle with a worst possible tyrant ruling the castle. There they are. They've been born there. They were bred there. They're dragging their chains around in the most horrible condition you can imagine in the dungeons of Isengard. This is who they are out there. These are the people you meet in Safeway and other places. That's where they're born and bred, brothers and sisters. Do you have a message for them? you have a message for them? Do you have a good news for them? you have a redemptive message for them? Or is it just too bad for you? Give me my groceries. I'm out of here. What do we have for the world? What kind of message do we have? This is redeemable. Let's say it. This is redeemable. This is redeemable. Well, that's the premise. Let's move on to the conclusions Verses 9, 10, 11, and 12. Let's keep going. So first, we envision redemption for ourselves and for others. And then secondly, we, we call out to God for it. That's verse 9. So we envision it. We, we, get, we, we pa- get a passion for it. We see our need for it. We see our brother's need for it. We see our, our, our relatives and our neighbors needing this thing. So we envision redemption. That's the first step. You envision it. It's possible. God has promised it. He's brought it in his son. There's a possibility of redemption here. I can see it. I can envision it. Now, secondly, call out to God for it. See verse 9. And you shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. We pray according to his will. And it is his will. It's planned from all eternity. You're talking his talk now, that's his language. He's been all about this since all eternity. sent his son for it. And you're saying, God, we need some redemption down here. What's he going to do? What's he going to do? What do you think he's going to do? If this is his passion, if this is what matters to him, is this, this is the thing that Jesus came to get us. Cry out, help, redeem me. Genuinely, I need your redemption Set me free. Help me, God. I'm in the chains of the devil and sin. Oh God, I've got the fear of death in me. It's got a grip on my soul. Oh God, help me redeem me. What do you think he's going to do? What do you think he's going to do? Of course he's going to redeem you. That's, that's, of course, what he's going does his will. That's what he's accomplished. That's what he will bring about in the life of your, your friend as well as your own life. Call, the Lord will answer. You shall cry. You will say, here I am. Thirdly, first envision redemption, then call out for it. And thirdly, verse 10, then your light shall dawn in the darkness, and your darkness shall be as noonday. The lights turn on in your life. Now we can see. Now we can understand. Now we're climbing out of the dungeon. Now we can see in Four dimensions, three dimensions. We can see in full color. We can see reality. We can see the glory of God. We can see where we were and where we're headed. And we can see all of these things and they're glorious. No, we couldn't see it when we were born and bred in Isengard. Couldn't see it back then. But now we can. Ephesians 5 8, you who were once darkness, now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Children, let me ask you this question What's the difference between light and darkness? Night and day. Isn't it? Now, let's say that light has a battle with darkness. Who wins? Every time. Every time. Light has a battle with darkness. There's light in that corner. Here's darkness over in this corner. Ding, ding, ding. Lights turn on. What happens with darkness? Gone. Who wins? Light wins. A brother told me once, He was on a flight sitting next to a young lady who was a star in bad movies. I'll just put it that way. Who won? Light won. You stand up in a university classroom You share truth and love to to this group in 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 the darkest possible reality you could imagine. You stand up and say... Guys, we are sinners by nature. We need God to come and redeem us, and Jesus has done that to set the captives free, those who are captured by Satan, by sin, by adultery, by fornication, by homosexuality. Jesus has come to set us free. Turn on the lights. Who wins? Light wins. Number four, verse 11, the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in the drought. Strengthen your bones and you shall be like a watered garden. It's beautiful, like a spring of water. Waters do not fail. What beautiful pictures. I mean, we're, we're contrasting the, the dried up garden that's been through a three-year drought. They haven't had any water for three years. It's all crusty and nothing. And now we've got beautiful watered garden, spring of water. Waters don't fail again. These prophetic words are so beautiful because we all know what they look like. We know what he's talking about here. We know what an emaciated body looks like. But have you ever seen an emaciated soul? You see some Africans, you know, three days away from starving to death, that's emaciated. What does an emaciated soul look like? Somebody hasn't been to church their whole life. Somebody has no word of God within them at all. People haven't internalized anything, they're just cadavers. Sometimes, cadavers sitting and listening to the Word, but the cadavers, it's, it's not absorbing, it's not coming into the heart. It's kind of sitting there, rattling around the brain, but it's not really going into their souls. And so we know what an what a emaciated body looks like, you got emaciated souls, but here you've got this, this watered garden, and you begin to see all this fruit showing up, this beautiful redemption that God is bringing through the work of the Spirit of God in people's lives. And there's a restoration, think about the word restoration, Restoring the years the locusts have eaten. Uh, rest- restoration, what does that mean? It means to, to come alive a fulfillment, a joy, a peace that you've never felt before. It's the damage that was done to your soul, to your mind, to your body, to all your addictions, to all of these things has been totally reversed. Now we're going a different direction now. Now you've got a restoration of all these bad things. You see that ramshackle house that uh, somebody's got to do a makeover on. You see this on the garden house, HG, whatever it was. Um, right? You see this ramshackle, horrible 700-square-foot piece of junk, and then these, these wonderful stars come in. They say, hey, we can fix this thing. And then you get the before, the after, and you're going, "Whoa, a tremendous makeover. Wow! the before the after is light and darkness night and day and we begin to see that God is doing a work in the life of this person and it's so beautiful relationships are restored broken marriages coming back together spiritual life replacing spiritual death the demoniac at the gadarenes i would have loved to follow his life afterwards wouldn't you i'm like he was in his right man. his the Savior said, no, you can't come with me. You go back. And you know what he did? I'll just, I'll just throw this out. He started a, a recovery from drug abuse program down there in the Gadarenes. 500 drug addicts came out of that. And now they're living beautiful lives. And they're ministering to others as well. And you're saying, can that happen? Yes, it can. From a demoniac from whom Jesus cast the legion. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That kind of thing can happen, brothers and sisters. It's radical. It's amazing. It's the most amazing thing in the universe. And so, let me give you an extended illustration of this. I hope you'll bear with me just for a moment, because I, I can't think of a better example than David Brainerd. So I just want to read this for you. Put up with me just for a moment. It's David Brainerd and the Cross Week sung Indians. Uh, the story began on June 18th, 1745. After three years of ministry with little fruit... A discouraged missionary made his way into Cross Weeksung, south of Trenton, New Jersey for another visit to the tribe. There he preached to a congregation of four Indian women. The next day he returned to the same spot and discovered a larger crowd awaiting him. They brought their friends from 10 to 15 miles away. They went around, gathered their friends to hear the message. David preached again the following day, this time to a crowd of about 30. Tremendous change was coming about. This time, the natives seemed greatly affected by the message. Weeping many tears while he spoke, they were beginning to realize their perishing state and appeared concerned for a deliverance from it, quote unquote. The response it came as a refreshing wave over the poor missionary. Listen, this was indeed a very sweet afternoon for me. He wrote in his diary, the Indians asked him to continue his preaching routine twice daily. Two times a day. Couldn't couldn't survive without it anymore. Despite his physical weakness, Brainerd agreed. And at this point, the crowd had expanded to 40 to 50 persons. One of the native women told me, I wish God would change my heart. For the following days and weeks, the native men and women continued mourning over the condition of their souls. Upon his return to the Forks on July 14th, the Holy Spirit's presence seemed to follow his ministry. He baptized Moses and his entire household, the first baptism in his ministry. Then the Holy Spirit came in Pentecostal power on August 8th, 1745. David was preaching from Luke 14, 16 and 23 on the parable of the banquet feast to about 65 Indians and cross week sung. And David writes of the moment. Here it was. This is when a Pentecost happened in America. Probably the first one in our history. The power of God seemed to descend upon the assembly like a rushing mighty wind, and with an astonishing energy bore down upon all. I stood amazed, David says, at the influence that seized the audience almost universally and could compare it to nothing more aptly than the irresistible force of a mighty torrent or a swelling deluge that with its insupportable weight and pressure bears down and sweeps before it whatever is in its way Almost all persons of all ages were bowed down with concern together. Scarce one was able to withstand the shock of this surprising operation. Old men and women who had been drunken wretches for many years, some little children not more than six or seven years of age, in distress for their souls, as well as persons of middle age, the most stubborn hearts were now obliged to bow to Jesus. They were almost universally praying and crying for mercy in every part of the house. And many out of the doors and numbers could neither go nor stand. Their concern was so great, each one for himself, that none seemed to take notice of anybody around them. Each prayed freely for himself. David was awestruck as he witnessed the work of God upon the hearts of men, women, and children. A witch doctor in attendance who had found guilty of murder was there weeping, wailing, and calling out to God for mercy. A woman who had earlier in the day mocked Brainerd, now lay prostrate on the ground praying. She continued in that position for hours. The revival continued the next day as David preached from Matthew 12 and the parable of the sower to a large crowd. Again, many of the men and women in attendance were struck with anguish, concern for their souls. He wrote, I spoke not a word of terror, but on the contrary, I just set before them the fullness, all sufficiency of Christ's merits and his willingness to save anybody who came to them. And the cry just went up, he said, one after another, Guta Kaluma, kalumna, Kaluma, kalumna. Have mercy on me, O God, have mercy on me. Instantly, the missionary saw a change of heart and life with these Indians. In his diary, he testified that no human cause was employed to bring this about. He had not changed his delivery style. No emotional manipulation was used at the meetings. Rather, Bra- Brainerd writes, God's manner of working, Upon these Indians appeared so entirely supernatural and above means that I could scarcely believe he used me as an instrument, for it seemed, as I thought, to have no connection with or, or dependence upon any means in any respect at all. Then on November 3rd of that year, Brainerd baptized 14 natives, six adults, and eight children. Two of the men baptized have been singular and remarkable even among the Indians for their wickedness. This brought the total number of baptisms to 47. All were exhibiting fruits of repentance. At least three marriages were restored. Family prayers or family devotions were now common among the Indian families, an indication that this gospel had really penetrated. This was indeed the work of the mighty Spirit of God. Several of these young converts became evangelists, traveling back up to the forks with David to bring the good news of salvation up into Pennsylvania. Real spiritual fruit was evident in their lives. As David wrote, I know of no assembly of Christians where there seems to be so much of the presence of God, where brotherly love is so much prevails, and where I should take so much delight in the public worship of God in general, as in my own congregation, although not more than nine months ago, they were worshiping devils and dumb idols under the power of darkness and superstition. Amazing change this, affected by nothing less than divine power and grace. And somebody just say hallelujah. 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 You say, is this real? Does this ever happen anywhere? absolutely. And the transforming power of the Holy Spirit of God has done this throughout history over 2,000 years. And I am, I am inspired to the umpteenth degree having once again read so many instances of this happening in history. I believe this can happen right here in this valley of Elizabeth. I, I think it can happen. You say, well, wow, you mean drunkards? You mean people having divorces? You mean people that uh, serve Satan? You mean people who are mocking the ministry today are going to be on their faces for three hours tomorrow at some meeting that we preach the Word of God, not in some emotional contriving way, but, but just the Word of God plainly presented? You mean people will actually be transformed into evangelists for the living Christ? You mean that's possible in Elizabeth? Yes, it is. And it is throughout the Denver metro area. Amen. Amen. The redemption of Jesus truly brings a restoration of the years the locusts have eaten. And for some peoples, it will be centuries of locust consumption. Millennia, where the locusts have been eating. Millennia. And Jesus reverses that inside of three weeks. It happened in Thessalonica. It happened with the cross weeks on the Indians. It can happen here too. Anybody believe that? Does anybody here believe that? Yes, I do. Yes, you do. Amen. He sets the captives free. He kills our sin. He crushes Satan, and the trees blossom, and they bear fruit, some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. Children, let's just go over the notes real quickly. Followers of Jesus love liberty. Number two, Jesus sets the captives free. You can add a hallelujah there, too, if you want to. Number three, we become like a beautiful garden. And number four, our children will raise up the foundations of many generations, and that's my final point. A generational blessing appears where Pentecostal power comes in. Our children, hearts of the children to the fathers, fathers to the children, our children begin to speak the word of God in the Joel 2 blessing. We find that in Acts chapter 2. Those from among you, shall build the old waste places, you shall raise up the foundations of many generations, and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Can you imagine that? I know we come out of so much apostasy in the West and Europe and America. It's hard to imagine that our children will be the beginning of a foundation for many generations. Now that's the way it's been for 2,000 years, and that's the way it's going to continue to be. But can you imagine a reformation in our children's generation? That these children sitting here hearing the word of God today, something will enter into their spiritual bloodstream and they will become the next series of reformers and revivalists and and these great evangelists and missionaries and disciplers for the next generation. Can you imagine it? Can you envision it? You say it's hard for me to envision that with my two-year-old. I get that. But, but we're, we're bringing God's word in. We're, we're not looking at the child himself. We're looking at the word here. We're looking at the promise that comes in the new covenant. We'll begin to see the gardens and the ashes, as was mentioned. So at the least, brothers and sisters, I guess my only application is, would you capture the vision today? The potentiality of it? The glory of it? That our lives that our ministries are not a dead end. That whatever is going on in your family, whatever is happening in this church, whatever is happening in our ministries, these will not be the end of it. This is not a dead end. This is only the beginning of something. Can you envision that? That's what the word is bringing you today. Can you receive, I'm I'm not a prophet here, I can't tell that America is salvageable. Can't tell where redemption The repair of the breach is going to be in the micro or the macro. I can't tell you that, but the promise is here that those that are of us will be the foundations for many generations to come. Just ask that you retain a vision for for what God has brought out in this scripture for us. Look into your children's eyes and you tell them, I believe God can do this. I believe his promises." I know the bankruptcy. I understand where, we're, where we are. We're so much like Old Testament Israel. I get that. The bankruptcy before us is breathtaking on every level. I get it. Economy, character, gender identity, sexuality, family, marriage, faith, hope. The world has abandoned God and His truth. I get it. But can you imagine redemption? Can you imagine restoration? Can you imagine that? There isn't much left of what the locusts have eaten, right? Joel 1 comes to mind. What the cutting locust left and the swarming locust has eaten in America. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust came in and ate in America. And finally, what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust came in and finished it off. Yes, there's not much left of our country. There's not much left anymore. But, listen, those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Gardens planted in the ashes of what used to be Western civilization. Is it possible? Is something possible here? Is something possible anywhere around the world? Absolutely, Isaiah 58, verses 11 and 12. There it is. While the world aborts Children euthanizes the elderly, implodes the birth rates, spends their great-grandchildren into debt. In a self-centered existentialist age, the Christian church is adopting. The world is aborting. Christians are adopting. We're caring for the elderly without government monies. These are beautiful things. The redeemed are now empowered by Christ to give up their lives and their money for others. While the world escapes reality, so as not to deal with the reality of God, sin, and death, we are wholeheartedly embracing the reality of God, Christ, redemption, and resurrection. Hallelujah! We are the most optimistic in the most pessimistic age where our our, our world around us have been so immersed in nothing but hopelessness and nihilism and such, we are the most optimistic because we are not immersed in that. We're immersed in the word of God. We're flourishing in the word because we've turned away from the worldly worldly inputs and we've rejected that. We repented of those things and we've embraced God We've turned away from escapism. We've embraced Christ, redemption, resurrection, nothing but hope for the future. That's our attitude in a pessimistic age. We are the gardens and the ashes of Western civilization. I've studied worldviews for my new book for 11th graders, and I've contrasted the worldviews. I've, I've, I've concluded that the worldview of naturalistic materialism that really is everywhere in the United States is the most hopeless. It is more hopeless than Hinduism, than Buddhism, than Islam. It is the most hopeless, the most destructive religion possible is that taught in American universities. It's that taught by the the zeitgeist today throughout the media. It's the assumption in the media that is by far the most hopeless doctrine that man has ever seen, now inculcated everywhere, to the point that, of course, the suicide rates and the hopeless death rates are just... Burgeoning eight ten times what they were in 1999 today, as you all know. But but in this world of pessimism, we're the most optimistic. In this world that's abandoned all possibility for certainty and for hope and for meaning in a Nietzschean wasteland, we raise our children and grandchildren in the fruitful gardens of God's truth, faith, hope, love, and joy. The church is a, an oasis and becomes more of an oasis than ever before, an oasis of life and, and real and substantial redemption. I believe this is the future for the church. I believe the church is going to look like the, the only hope in the world in the next 10 years. This is it. They will come here or commit suicide, effectively. Effectively. Those will be the only options over the next 10 years. Now, I know the suicide is a slow suicide often, involving the disconnection from reality in the, in the media or drugs or whatever, psychotropics and all the rest. Okay, that's already happened. But that's just continuing to happen. The only place where they're not committing suicide is where they're hearing the truth. And they're receiving the message of redemption and resurrection, and that there's hope, ultimate hope, in a world of ultimate despair. And then we become the oasis where the crowds come in, and then revival starts to happen. And we begin to see a reformation sweeping across the Western world. As we train our children in the knowledge that's rooted in the fear of God, In the firm hope of the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, by the grace of God, our children will be the ones most motivated to to rebuild the broken down systems. Our children will be the only ones left to plant the gardens and the ashes of what used to be Western civilization. Amen. Our Father in heaven, ah, there's hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ that we would see it today in sharper tones. God, that we would see the contrast for sure. But also, God, experience your redemption. Redeem, we pray, O oh God, redeem. Father God, we pray you'd fulfill this redemption in me and my brothers and sisters, and we would be the fruitful gardens. We would be the beautiful exemplars of the redemption of Jesus in every area of life, in hope, in love, and joy and faith. Oh, Father, make this clear in the eyes of each of my brothers and sisters here today and a a reality in our lives. Set the captives free. Jesus, we lift this up one more time. Bring in more refugees. Bring in more refugees, those bound hand and foot to their addictions, bound hand and foot by the devil, bound hand and foot by their biases, their prejudices, Their unforgivenesses, their bitterness, their anger against you, or whatever it is, set them free from the devil today, we pray. Oh, God, have mercy. If this is the last day on planet earth, we pray for a great revival. One more time, Father, do it again. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Let's just take a moment and remember the Lord's death until he comes. One more time. Uh, Those of you visiting for the first time, look at our bulletin. We have a little piece on how to partake of the Lord's table here at our church. But I just have something very brief to share with you first. And that is just to understand the breadth and the depth and the width and the beauty of the redemption of Jesus. We need to understand more of the broad scope of the mission Jesus set out to do when he brought about our redemption. So what is this? What is the breadth of it? Try to to increase the size of your mind to, to open up and to see what Christ has done for us. Uh, Part of the problem is when you're under the ground, it's hard to see. But when you're just kind of a worm and you're moving around the dirt, it's just hard to get out above the dirt and look up and see the great vision of Christ's redemption for us. And so that's what we're praying the Spirit will do for us this morning. Revelation 21, verse 5. This is at the very end. We find that John is, is right there and Jesus is actually speaking to John directly. So there it is at the very end. Jesus is right there and he says to John, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. These are the words of, of Jesus. He's, he's saying, I have come to make all things new. And, and that, that's everything. All things is everything. That's the entire universe. So I just want you to understand that there's a huge scope involved in the redeeming work that Jesus came. When we step out, we see all kinds of bad things. We're talking about bad things all the time. And we're like, People are too lazy. Somebody said that to me this morning. People are too lazy. You know, and then there's Biden, and there's, there's a billion things to complain about, right? There, almost nothing's going right, except for the fact that Jesus came, and he's making everything right. So, so just, again, the scope of the redemption, Jesus says to John, Behold, I make all things new. Okay, number two. Colossians 1. He came to re- reconcile all things to himself by him. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Okay, once again, reconciling all things to himself, meaning there's, there's this battle going on between God and the world. It's a cosmic battle, the battle between the angels, the good angels, and the demons, right? And the, there's all these battles of ideas, and there's conflict, and it's just this cosmic war that's going on. And Jesus is coming to reconcile everything, take care of everything, put all the enemies down. There will never be another war between good and evil again. And he's doing it by the blood that he shed on the cross. Again, just step back. I want you to see the whole thing, the chaos, the enmity, sin, its wretched consequences, all of that, all the damage that's been done in in your life, in my life, in the world around us, all of that, will be reconciled to Christ. And then finally, Romans 8, 21. You all know this passage as well, but I bring it to you because here it says, the whole creation, the whole creation is groaning and travailing. The whole creation will be delivered from the bondage of corruption to the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Remember when we shot our first deer? Man, that just tore on my heart. My daughters are crying, you know. They shot it. But they're <laughs> crying. And I'm the guy with the forty-five has to put it out of its misery. I'm like, come, Lord Jesus, come. This isn't right. You know, I mean, meet the next day, but that's one thing. But, but the whole creation is groaning and travailing. We want this fixed. We want all things new. And that all comes by a redemption. Listen, not only that, but we also... Who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of the body. That is, our body and the whole body, the whole physical universe. So, brothers and sisters, we approach the table today. Jesus came to fix it all, and he does it by his blood. He shed his blood, reconciles all things to himself. He's redeemed the world, and that redemption is consummated at the very end. But let's just say, glory be to Jesus for this broad scope, this amazing full redemption plan to make all things new. And whatever's not going right in your life right now, I want you to say as you come to this table, yeah, but Jesus is going to make all that new. Jesus is going to fix that. He's going to reconcile that to himself as well. Amen? Amen. Our Father God, our hearts are swelling with joy and with glory just to think of what Jesus has done, this this great vision that you have set from all eternity, brought to bear at the cross, where Jesus shed his blood, overcame death and the devil, and then now he's at the right hand, bringing all these enemies under his footstool. Father, it is the blood of Christ that accomplishes this great redemption today. As we receive the cup one more time, Father, that we would see the value of it, that we'd see the blessing of it, that we would see... The breadth of it, the glory of it, Father, all of that may it converge in our minds that you would receive all the praise. And Jesus, the thanksgiving and the glory to you. You are the Lamb who has accomplished this for us. We look forward to when every tribe and nation come together to praise the Lamb on the throne, whom we praise right now as we receive the cup and the bread. In Jesus' name, Amen.